BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, March 4th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. This week, Kishore is away on a well-deserved vacation. So joining me is our go-to guest host, Rebecca Watson. She's a writer and the founder of Skeptic, as well as a comedienne and just extraordinary individual. Oh, thank you, Indre. (laughs) Oh, what a nice introduction that was. That was way better than when Kishore gave me an introduction when I was replacing you last time. So... Throw down for Kishore. Next time I'm on, he needs to go above and beyond to flatter me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say something derogatory about Kishore, but he's not here to defend himself. So I, I will refrain from that. I'm very I mean, fond of him. Even when he's here, he can't defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that. <laughs> we love you, Kishore. This week's show is about a pet topic of mine, and that is Prodigy. This discussion about whether or not people are born with extraordinary talent or whether it's something that is influenced by their environment. And of course, the answer is a little bit of both. But to explore a possible link between prodigy and autism spectrum disorders, I interviewed Joanne Ruthsatz, who's an assistant professor of psychology at Ohio State. She's a world expert on prodigies and has accumulated the largest set of prodigies in the world in terms of her case studies. And her daughter, Kimberly Stevens, who's a freelance journalist and has co-authored academic papers on child prodigies. She's also a member of the DC Science Writers Association. Indre, I'm very curious about this interview because do you think that it would be really difficult to be the daughter of someone who studies child prodigies and to have a great amount of pressure on you to be <laughs> smart and talented. I I do. Uh, and I, although I think there's also this kind of, of, of people who study prodigies, I find that there's this reverence for genius that doesn't, you know, where it, where it becomes almost otherworldly. And it's this sort of sense that these individuals are so fundamentally different from the rest of us that it's like studying you know, an alien species. So there isn't necessarily a kind of expectation that uh, their own kids would, would, you know, measure up to these prodigies. But, but yeah, I I am definitely, uh, you know, interested in in that link between mom and daughter. What do you think goes on with prodigies? Have you ever met a prodigy? Not to my knowledge, but I understand that they can blend in with the rest of humanity. So I may have accidentally bumped into one. I I was uh, a bright child, but nowhere near a prodigy, which I realized once, you know, I was I was reading at a high school grade, you know, when I was very young, but then I just sort of caught up and now I'm still reading at a high school age. So I don't think that I was actually a prodigy. 
You just got stuck in the young adult section. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm really into Harry Potter, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, how, about, how about you? Well, so that's been my... I my sort of feeling too is that we we tend to put prodigies up on a pedestal, particularly if they are in domains which with with which we have no expertise. So whenever someone sends me a YouTube video of you know a young child who's singing opera, seemingly well beyond their capabilities, to me it often just doesn't seem that impressive. I see a lot of mimicry, um, you know, I see a lot of kind of behind the scenes action. So for example, a lot of these cases, the music is transposed down an octave or the difficult passages are cut out um, but you know because the child sounds like as it you know, like an older singer it seems really impressive to people but I haven't yet sort of experienced or met or seen a, a child that I really feel is literally from a different planet or I guess not literally from a different <laughs> planet but figuratively from a different planet right well um, and to to put it into perspective, isn't that how Justin Bieber got popular? He was, I'm serious about this too, he was playing the drums on YouTube and it blew up because he was so seemingly brilliant at it. So, I mean, was Justin Bieber a child prodigy? Does that count? I mean, you know, maybe by some definitions of him achieving professional status before age 10, which I think is the official definition. I mean, he certainly got paid to sing, I think, probably before age 10. So so maybe. But does that seem to me, you know, in the same plane as some of these stories that you hear about, you know, these kids who learn to talk when they're four months old? Like, not really. Right. <laughs> right? That, that seems to me much more, you know, and on a different level. But is that a part of it as well, though, the the subjective nature of deciding what counts as a prodigy and what doesn't count when you're studying it? I mean, I, I think it has to, because I don't know that we necessarily have a good general definition of what it means to be a, a prodigy. So that's something that definitely I, I, I want to probe the uh, interviewees on. Um, and, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's example of Charlotte Church, too, who um, rose to fame when she was very young. You know, she was one of these young singers. And but nowadays, it's not like she's singing on the stage of the Met and making, you know, huge inroads into um, the musical world. So from that perspective, she her her prodigiousness kind of ended at a certain time. You know what I mean? Just like me. Yeah. <laughs> when I yes. hit ninth grade. Exactly like you. Yeah. <laughs> So that'll be our interview for today. But first, is there anything that caught your eye in the science news this week? Well, yeah, I was trying to keep tabs on Super Tuesday yesterday. And you mean last Tuesday? <clears throat> I was trying to keep tabs on Super Tuesday last Tuesday when all of the uh, primaries and caucuses were happening here in the US. But for some reason, my Twitter feed was just full of some guy coming home from work. After, I know. <laughs> mine too. After uh, a, a year at work. A space. year in space. Of course, we're talking about Commander Scott Kelly, who returned from the space station having spent 340 days up there. And I think he does now hold the world record for the amount of time He's total time in space, I think. Uh, I, I think he's the American with the most continuous mm. time spent in space. He may be overall most time in space uh, internationally, but there are, I believe, other people who have tied him or surpassed him, including uh, the Russian cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko, who was up there with him. But nobody in the U.S. really cares about him because... <laughs> He's Russian, I suppose. Yep. Americans just don't care uh, about that, <laughs> it seems, because I did not realize that the two of them were up there together until you just told me. Yeah. Um, so so thank you for being so well informed. Hey, my pleasure. It's what I do. Uh, um, but the thing that I think is super cool about Scott Kelly is, of course, the fact that he has a twin brother who also is a former astronaut, but didn't spend the last year in space. And so we can now actually see what effect... Uh, space had on, you know, one brother, but not the other. And and so, you know, because obviously, the problem is always that people age at different rates. And so when you just compare a person before and after, well, you don't know how much they would have aged anyway. Um, and although Mark and Scott are different people, uh, there is, you know, going to be some correlation with the types of changes that they have in, in terms of age. So I, I'm definitely interested in seeing um, more about the comparison, you know, between the two. 
Yeah, and they'll be specifically looking at genetic markers, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's not like his brother was just in stasis down here either. You know, he was going about his daily life doing things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there there will be differences. One might have shaved more. <laughs> Instance. Maybe, maybe. Well, I mean, for for one thing, they've already uh, suggested that uh, Scott is two inches taller now yeah. than Mark, uh, because of course uh, your spine uh, expands or you know does not contract the way it does in in uh, gravity. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. There are also a host of uh, health problems that could occur because of this, which I think is part of the reason why. Both of the men chosen were on the older side because there are problems like they might have smaller hearts because your heart doesn't Mm -hmm. have to work as hard in zero gravity, so it loses mass. And uh, also their risk of cancer increases due to radiation that they encounter in space. So there's a lot to look into here. And unfortunately, not all of it is going to be great news for the guys who are up there. So it's really not just incredible that they stayed in space for a year, although that is incredible being away from your family and your friends and all of humanity for that long. But also, they have taken very real risks with their own well-being. And that should be, I think, appreciated. Uh, but I say, I have to say that so far, my favorite part of his return is um, Obama's tweet, or, you know, whoever runs Obama's Twitter feeds tweet, <laughs> uh, where he makes a joke about being back on Earth and, you know, hoping gravity's not a drag. I thought that was very funny. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Dork. (laughs) All right. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Joanne Ruthsetz and Kimberly Stevens. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is also offering Acquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So some books that you might consider that have been featured on previous episodes of the podcast include The Geography of Genius, a search for the world's most creative places from ancient Athens to Silicon Valley by Eric Weiner, Why We Snap, Understanding the Rage Circuit in Your Brain by R. Douglas Fields, or The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor by Mark Schatzker. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus instructions to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes, all delivered straight to your door every week. These are chef-designed, restaurant-quality recipes, including rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers and goat cheese, maple miso-glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple, or Parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans. You get recipe cards with step-by-step instructions to make cooking accessible. You'll be able to cook chef-driven, healthy, restaurant-grade dinners in a flash. These are nutrient-dense, perfectly proportioned meals tailored to your unique dietary needs. No more waiting in line at the grocery store, planning out what to cook, or resorting to takeout. And each meal is under $10. Visit homechef.com and use code MINDS at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com slash MINDS and use code M-I-N-D-S. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Joanne Ruthsatz and Kimberly Stevens. Thanks for having us. Joanne, I wanted to start with you and ask you how you first became interested in studying prodigies, in part because I have a background in psychology myself, and it seems like it's one of those niche subjects that doesn't necessarily guarantee tenure, if you get my drift. Oh, I totally get your drift. I'm I wasn't studying prodigies. I was actually working with mentally uh, disabled children, and a different researcher wrote a paper that said all you needed to do to be exceptional at anything was to start young and practice for 10 years. And I thought, well, 
then you come in this classroom and help these children who can't even brush their teeth or use the restroom by themselves. I had, at that time, an 11-year-old who was 44 pounds, had no reinforcers, and so it kind of hurt my feelings to think that parents would hear this of disabled children, that it was partially their fault that they didn't start them younger on this exponential path of success. And so I uh, contacted the Cleveland Institute of Music and high school bands where they're self-selected and showed that my equation, which was general intelligence, domain-specific skills, and practice time would all account for your achievement level. And it was while I was doing that, my husband brought home uh, the cover of People magazine, and there was a child prodigy on the cover. And he said, if you're so interested in exceptional performers, how about this kid on the cover? And I thought, oh, you know, that could be fascinating because he should have a huge IQ. His domain-specific skills in music should be off the charts because he hasn't had a formal lesson and he has hasn't had much time to practice. And that's how it all started. And of course, prodigies are often held up as the best evidence in the nature versus nurture debate debate when we're talking about talent, that really nature plays a primary role. And yet prodigies are incredibly rare. Is that because we just haven't found all of them? Is it because their you know, talents haven't been allowed to develop? Or why do you think that there is this massive gap between a child prodigy and a you know typically developing child and that those prodigies are so incredibly rare i believe they're rare because they have a um, mutation or a deletion some sort of protection against autism where the talent is there their working memories are exceptional their attention to detail is profound they have um, a, just a rage to master the craft, all the things that you see in autistic children. But I believe they have a mutation that holds the deficits back that are associated with autism and allows just the talent to shine through. So, Kimberly, I assume that part of the wonderful storytelling in the book that you've written together, The Prodigy's Cousin, The Family Link Between Autism and Extraordinary Talent, um, comes uh, from your work as a journalist and a science writer. Um, and of course, these prodigies make really great stories. And sometimes I worry that when we study them, we get, you know, sort of sucked into their story. And we look for confirming evidence for what our beliefs are about this idea that, you know, you can just, you know, be born with such amazing talent. So as you're working through these stories, have you thought about how to sort of control for the effects that sort of the confirmation bias has in terms of how we evaluate the evidence? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think it's one of the tricky things about prodigy studies is that it's actually pretty tricky to control for anything because there's so few of them. And you're, you know, always working with them once the talent has already shown itself. I, you know, I think in the cases of these kids, you definitely see that they have supportive parents. You know, these are all parents who are willing to, you know, drive them to lessons or buy art supplies or, or you know, be generally supportive. Um, but these aren't parents who are dead set on developing this ability. You know, they they vary a great deal in the expertise they have personally, and they also vary a great deal in how much they're sort of willing to make family life revolve around, you know, this kid and their their really unique talent. And so I think you really get the sense that this, what's been called a rage to master, this real passion for their area of interest is something internal. And you can see it you know, almost from birth in some cases, there's there's a kid whose mom talked about how he would dictate song choices from the stroller, you know, with a shake of his head. And and another kid who at four months old would just was totally engrossed by books. And as soon as he could, he'd take his finger and he'd trace the letters because he was so interested in reading and words. It's so hard for me as a parent myself to imagine how this is even possible. And so I guess I want to start with the understanding of how do we define a prodigy? And in particular, what makes a prodigy a prodigy versus someone that we call a savant? So there's a actually a 
I have that feeling all the time that, you know, these stories, like they border on the unbelievable. And there's, I had a great quote from one of the moms who said, you know, sometimes it's as if the dog turned to you and said, I could really go for a snack right now. She said, you know, these moments that just raise the hairs on your arms and you think, did that really just happen? So (laughs) I think they would actually relate with it to that too. But to, to answer the other part of your question, the sort of scholarly definition of a prodigy is a kid who can perform at an adult level in a demanding field before adolescence. And sort of the the heart of it is this exponential development of talent as a kid. It's, you know, it's like a runaway train. So this is the idea that given the same amount of practice, the child who is a prodigy actually achieves more than the child who isn't? Or is it that the child who is a is a prodigy has this rage to master, therefore spends so much more time enga- engaged in their activity, um, which leads them to achieve things more quickly? I think that they definitely achieve more quickly uh, with a given amount of time. There have been case studies of like, Clara Schumann, her father would only let her practice two hours a day, so he refused to let her commit her life to it. But she went on and uh, performed, I believe, in the European circuit when she was six years old and then uh, was a prolific composer and musician until her late 70s. So even with limited practice, they she still was able to do it. And so there's still this question of how does a person who is considered a prodigy get differentiated from a person who is a savant? And of course, the stereotype of the savant is that, you know, there is a disability that comes with the ability. Is that, can you find prodigies who don't seem to have any other visible or measurable disability? And is that what differentiates them from savants? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, is that, you know, a savant has a real spike in ability that's coupled with some sort of impairment, and the prodigies do not. They have these extreme talents that are seem inexplicable. In fact, I think probably the most or the least <laughs> explicable case in your book is that of Zach, I would say. <laughs> um, so can, can you describe for our listeners the story of Zach and you know why it just seems so mind-boggling, especially for someone like me who is trained in neuroscience? So Zach was a rambunctious kid. You know, he's a he's a pretty typical kid. He he loves ping pong, he loves video games, and he also happens to be the younger brother of another child who is an art prodigy. But you know, Zach is is a different kid. He is not into drawing. It's he is doesn't have his brother's sort of willingness to devote himself to what he's doing. And so the boys were at a youth group meeting at church and they were um Zach and his friends were playing a game where they were jumping over cardboard boxes and Zach was a bit of a daredevil and he decides he's going to dive over head first so he does and it it doesn't go well you know he he smacks his head against the church floor and he gets a concussion and when he wakes up he's different you know at first they notice that he's quieter that he seems more reserved and more serious and you know his mom says we thought maybe it just really got through to him that you can't be doing all these dangerous things that you can really get hurt. But then within a couple weeks, I believe a family friend brought over a secondhand guitar and she gave it to him. And Zach, who'd never shown any real sustained interest in anything, starts strumming. And he basically won't put it down. And his family's kind of, they're kind of laughing like, wow, we've never seen him so into something. But he stays up late that night. He wants his mom to teach him chords. And it just, it takes off from there. All of a sudden, he's composing. He wants to play the hardest, fastest pieces he can. You know, and now he's he's featured in Guitar World for his, his amazing playthroughs. So this reminds me of some of those case studies you hear about of a person who has, you know, some kind of brain trauma and then suddenly start speaking in a foreign language or with a foreign accent. Joanne, what is your explanation or what is your theory of what's happened in the brain that allows for this kind of massive change in a paradoxically positive direction? Well, it could be that there's been a shift from left hemisphere dominance after the fall to right hemisphere dominance where music, art, mathematics all 
all specialize in. And it could be after the fall that he was rerouted, his wiring went back, and that his uh, short-term memory was being processed possibly on the other side and in the cerebellum instead of in the cortex, which would allow for the exceptional memory. He has a really exceptional memory when I tested him. And um, I thought, it's like riding a bike. That's why you never forget because those memories are procedural. And so it could have just changed the route of his um, neurocircuits. So did you, does it worry you that you didn't get a chance to test his memory before the injury to see if there was an actual change from that perspective? I mean, I know that these are single cases, so it's really hard to have the right controls, but sort of how do you deal with that aspect of the work? Well, you can't because, as Kim said, it's all after the talent's exposed itself. And yes, would I have loved to test his IQ and his working memory before? Definitely. To see if that was the change, but we'll never know because I can't just take a neurotypical child and hope one of them turns into a prodigy. They're one in five million, maybe one in 10 million. And obviously that's impossible. And I guess that kind of underscores one of the big questions that get posed when we talk about people of exceptional talent or eminence. But to what extent do they reflect the um, extremes of a typically developing mind or something fundamentally different? And I think in particular, if you're suggesting a genetic link, um, that that might induce some people to think that really we're talking about something that's fundamentally different and that maybe can't be as easily applied to, you know, the everyday lives of the rest of us. No, what but do you, what do you I, think about that? I think it can be applied to children, possibly with autism. I think whenever we have a greater understanding of something, sometimes better treatment comes right afterwards. And so that brings me to the link that you're um, seeing and that you're proposing between a prodigy and an individual who is diagnosed with autism. So, I mean, that's where the title The Prodigy's Cousin comes in. So can you walk us through a little bit about of the evidence that you've you know, collected or observed that suggests that there is a link between a prodigious, ta- prodigious talent and um, individuals on the spectrum? So I think that most obvious link is the family link. You know, in the in my mom's 2012 study, more than half of the child prodigies she worked with had a close autistic relative. And and when I see, say close, I mean someone as close as as a cousin or a brother or an aunt. And what is that in the general population? So what would we expect if we just took a hand twenty people away? Would you know, in terms of the um, likelihood of them having a, a close relative who's who's diagnosed on the spectrum? Well, that would be like saying every other neighbor had someone in their family with autism, and that's just not where the data is. Even the most progressive data is saying one in 88. So that would be like saying every other household had a child with autism or a uh, cousin with autism, and that's not what you see. So we're going from 1 in 88 to 1 in 2. Is that the right? Is my math correct there? That's correct. (laughs) Okay, great. So then you also, once you get into the testing, you see this overlap in some of the behaviors and the cognitive profiles. And I think the one that's most immediately apparent is this rage to master, this real passion for their areas of interest. And, it, you know, for the prodigies, it, it can color every part of their lives. And it's also one of the defining characteristics of autism. And the prodigies also have really extreme working memories. You know, they test in the 99th percentile on this trait. And to sort of get a sense of what that means, I really like this quote from Jacob Barnett that he gave on 60 Minutes when he says, Every number or math problem I've ever heard, I permanently remember. So this isn't just, you know, I've got a pretty good memory. This is really extreme. And and that's a trait that's also associated with autism from the earliest days of the condition. The last of those traits is attention to detail. The prodigies have really excellent attention to detail, which has also been described as a universal trait of the autistic mind. So that also reminds me a little bit of... um 
Larry Cahill's hypermnestic patients, individuals who have seem, seem to have a prodigious episodic memory for things that have happened to them. So they're the kind of people that, you know, if you ask them what happened to them and, you know, Tuesday, March 5th, you know, 2003, I don't even know if that's a <laughs> real date, uh, they would be able to walk you through their entire day. And, you know, of course, these people are also very rare. Um, and what's interesting to me about that patient group, though, is that they really are impaired in terms of the functioning in their daily life, that they become obsessed with their ability to remember, um, and that it becomes intrusive. Um, so, you know, that that kind of pulls me in, in the direction of thinking about memory as, as or as for, of forgetting as actually a, a kind of adaptive part of memory that allows us to, you know, get the gist and that, you know, our memories have been shaped by evolution in order to allow us to forget the things that aren't important. So I guess my my um, question here is, to what extent does this memory, I mean, it, it seems like in these cases, in the cases of these prodigies, they seem to harness the power of this memory. And it doesn't seem to impair them the way it does in some of these other hypermnestic individuals. Is that an accurate um, observation? Yes, I believe that is accurate. Uh, if you would meet them and they uh, would begin to speak with you, you would see that they are typical children as in in a way that you wouldn't expect someone with that kind of uh, excellence to be. And yet there's a side of them that is, as Kim said, has this rage to master a particular task. And so... There's also this interesting comparison that you make between um, these prodigies and the kids that uh, are are more typical of um, those diagnosed with autism, in that in autism, we often see a, a, an inability or a, a change in the way that the people or that the kids interact socially. In fact, there's, there's this idea that they're having trouble empathizing, whereas the prodigy kids seem to be very good at empathizing. Can you talk a little bit about that difference uh, between these groups and whether it really is a, a, a difference or if it's just um, our you know, inability to really understand uh, autism spectrum disorders? Well, I think one of the things that allows them to empathize so well is that that is a right hemisphere function. There was a study done recently where they asked people to make altruistic decisions. And when they did, if they were altruistic um, or benevolent, then the right side of their brain um, would light up and there would be activity in that uh, area. And I think when the prodigies are... Um, talked about with right hemisphere specialties, I think it also includes the area that is uh, benevolent in other individuals. And to to go to your autism point, I think that there's actually increasingly reason to think that this isn't a difference between the prodigies and people with autism, that this is actually another similarity. You know, the prodigies show this this really incredible empathy from such a young age and while historically people thought that there might be an empathy deficit in autism, there's new research that suggests that autism comes with heightened sensitivities and that in some ways autistic people are too empathetic. They feel too deeply in a way that makes it difficult for them to, to respond as, as neurotypical people might. And this also leads me then to this sense of passion, uh, which you know seems to characterize both autistic children that find a, a something that they can do or become obsessed about, and obviously what you have already been alluding to, this sort of rage to master. Um, so what do we know about this passion and its neural basis or its genetic basis or, or any other kind of um, perspective on it? Well, I think to give a sense of of how sort of innate this passion is and how it really requires this lock and key fit, I like the story of Autumn DeForest, who's an art prodigy. And her dad is a musician. He composes and plays the drums. And they started Autumn on piano lessons, I think, around the time she was four. And she liked it. It was fun. They thought she had great rhythm. But it wasn't until the next year when she was five and she went outside and found her dad staining furniture. And she said, hey, can I try? And he, he said, sure. So he set her up with, you know, a piece of plywood and some paint. And it was like, bam, you know, painting 
spoke to her in a way that music never did, even though she was a willing student and happy enough. You know, painting really unlocks something for her. And when she talks about it, she talks about this feeling of contentment that it brings as if, you know, as if painting was waiting for her. And so this happens. And soon she's painting for hours every day after kindergarten. She's buying books with images of Georgia O'Keeffe's artwork. And by the time she's seven, she's showing her work and she's selling it. And it just, you know, it takes off like a shot. One of my favorite quotes from your book is, you know, when when I think one of your prodigies said, there's nothing I can do to stop it. You know, there's this this notion that it just happens. And I think that for a lot of us who are interested in the study of genius and, and um, you know, talent and and, you know, this this notion that the creativity just flows, just happens, um, seems really compelling to, you know, sort of get to your question about the cognitive basis. You know, my mom's research has found this really interesting thing that actually there there are distinct cognitive profiles that come with kids who specialize in art or music or math, and that there's actually a, a real reason that art might have spoken so clearly to Autumn in a way that music didn't, that, you know, there's there's sort of these specific skills that when combined with this rage to master is explosive. Do you think that there are, and to what extent then do you think this is common or not, um, individuals who just didn't find that domain? And what does their sort of trajectory look like in life? I think in the Western world that children, by and large, are exposed through the school systems to music, to art, to mathematics, and they find their way and even as young as 18 months old, was that when William started with the letters, Kimberly? That's when he was uh, saying the alphabet forward and backwards. They're just taking things that are available to them. My little musician that I first did was actually playing on pots and pans before he was given an instrument because he, he was replicating the music he was hearing in church, just using Tupperware and pots and pans. And they thought, well, they'd get him a musical instrument. And he just took off. And, you know, so sometimes when we talk about prodigies or, or eminent creatives, there is this question in psychology of the extent to which this kind of big C creativity is translatable to the everyday or little c creativity. Um, so to what extent do you think that uh, this the, the findings that you are describing in, in these prodigies really is qualitatively different in terms of their creative experience and output um, from those of us who are typically developing. Um, we don't have this prodigious talent, and yet uh, we you know, want to be creative in our own lives. That's a great question. We are running a study right now with Case Western Reserve, and we are measuring the same skill sets I measured on the prodigies to see if the math students are different than the art students and again, the music students. And if it is, it means pretty much people are predisposed, at least, if not predestined, to find their niche in this world from the moment of conception. It also reminds me of uh, a set of patients that you mentioned briefly in the book, but also um, that I had the um, opportunity to work with, which, which uh, came from Bruce Miller's lab at UCSF. And, you know, these are patients who have neurodegenerative disorders, like um, one's called frontotemporal dementia, for example, or semantic dementia. And some of these patients lose the ability to communicate using language um, because of their brain degeneration, or they have left frontal lobe uh, degeneration. And sometimes they have a, what looks like an unleashing of talent or of, of an obsession with a particular creative output. Um, so for example, some patients begin painting and they their paintings become more and more critically acclaimed and more original as the disease progresses, as they become more mute. And so I, I wanted to circle back to this notion of left brain, right brain. And, you know, I'm always hesitant to talk too much about it because of the um, massive uh, overstatement of the kind of left brain is logical and the right brain is, is creative and that, you know, most people miss out on the fact that, you know, in fact, for the vast majority of us, those hemispheres are deeply interconnected. Um, and it's really hard to sort of talk about one without the other. So... 
I hear what you're saying in the case of um, the individual who had a concussion, but do you think that there is a difference in the wiring that maybe um, some of this, maybe this is what underlies part of the genetics? Um, Maybe that's what sort of ties these conditions together, the, the prodigies and people on the spectrum, that might change the extent to which these two hemispheres are communicating with each other? Or, you know, what what other kind of... Um, how how else do you, you come to that idea um, without, you know, necessarily, you know, pu- pulling us down the path that, you know, left people who are left brain dominant can't be creative? So I think that's a great question. I think, um, you know, it's definitely possible that there are different types of creativity. And sometimes when they do brain scans on savants, for example, to see what's lighting up when they're, you know, calculating or doing various things, it's not always the hemisphere that you would expect. I think there's actually interesting research from uh, Dr. Alan Snyder's lab as well in in Australia at the Center for the Mind, where he has developed a creativity cap, is what he calls it. And what it does is it inhibits the left hemisphere and stimulates the right. And he gives people sort of difficult puzzles before and after. And what he finds has found is is some pretty interesting results that it does seem to allow more people to solve the puzzle once they've had this creativity cap applied than could before. But it's actually not true of everyone. So, you know, maybe creativity is coming from different sources for different people. It's it's a great question and, and something worth exploring. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love Alan's work. Uh, you know, it's also very much in the realm of sort of more case study land, because I think, you know, in some of his papers, it's like three out of 11 people showed the effect. <laughs> and you know what I mean? So that that certainly isn't the you know, it's not the majority. And I, you know, I think it's really compelling. Um, and I guess I just, you know, I, I've, I've just always wondered sort of, you know, the extent to which because these the, the brain is so interconnected, and I can see your point of how you can get this rewiring, and it can change, it can create massive sweeping changes in a relatively short period of time. Um, and we, you know, we see that in our patients, they find ways of expressing themselves, even when their language deteriorates. And yet, you know, it seems that there's, in the case of these prodigies, there's this, there's just this kind of inexplicability, this kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, maybe it's just kind of leaving me speechless, but there's a wonderment associated with um, the amount of the veracity with which these kids are able to tackle these seemingly very kind of adult-like things. You know, I think for me, that was really what was most intriguing about my mom's work and about, you know, this book, is I think in other contexts that we recognize this association between autism and talent. You know, we even have stereotypes like the absent-minded professor, the brilliant but geeky Silicon Valley programmer, but the child prodigies are not autistic. So the question of could autism still be fueling these incredible abilities is is really intriguing. So what do you think if you, I mean, I know the data aren't necessarily there yet, but um, Joanne, what do you think is the common link, if there is one, in terms of mechanisms? Um, what, what do you, what is your hunch of what is actually going on here? I think um, there's a deletion or a mutation that is holding back the deficits of autism and allowing only the talents that are associated with autism to shine through. Our first paper where we had the genetic hit showed that family members with autism and family members who were prodigies had a mutation on chromosome one. So we know what they're sharing. It's just we don't know why there's a difference for disability versus this extreme ability. But that's what we're looking for right now. We're working uh, with McGill University. Guy Raoul is looking for the moderator gene or whatever it is that allows these children to express the talent that's associated with autism without the deficits. And I, I love the fact that um, towards the end of the book, you actually follow up with a number of the cases and sort of tell us where they are today, because that's always a question for me. And it 
brought to to me the the question of how does this fit in with uh, Carol Dweck at Stanford, her work on growth versus fixed mindset. So the idea that if a child achieves a lot very early on, they develop this belief that their you know talent or intelligence or ability um, is ingrained in them, and it and it even suggests from what you're telling us that maybe there's some truth to that mindset. And yet these fixed mindset kids tend not to do very well later on in life uh, because they tend to take fewer risks and they tend to burn out and, you know, they, they tend not to persist in their um, passions because they become so tied to their self-esteem. Uh, did you see any of this kind of fixed mindset in some of these kids as they got older and, and some of these effects of um, that kind of uh, early achievement that might have caused them some um, real pain as they grew up and, you know, weren't at the top of their field? Or did they all just stay at the top of their field? Well, the very first prodigy I did was up for a national award this year. So that's 18 years later. So he's in his young 20s. And um, all of the prodigies that I'm in touch with, and that's pretty much all of them, have continued over the years to be just in love and loving what they're doing. We haven't seen their early ripe or an early rot syndrome. I think people like to think that, but I don't see it in any of my 30 prodigies yet. And are there any kids that you evaluated who were just very talented but didn't make the prodigy cut? I mean, did you have, you know, did you meet with individuals who, you know, I, it brings to mind, you know, the the little girl that sings like an opera singer at eight, but really all she's doing is imitating. And by the time she's 11 has no more, you know, is, is no more advanced than, than anyone else. That sort of, um, that type of musical prodigy, which is quite different from the kinds of prodigies that you discuss in your book. Do, what was your kind of, I don't know what you would call it, but people, you know, kids that didn't quite measure up. No, before I go, I make sure they're prodigies because I've traveled to England. I've been to Canada. I've been pretty much across the United States. And so before I make the trip, I want to make sure I, I Google them up. I look and see what their accomplishments are. You know, they're, they're people that are famous. You've seen them on TV. They're, they're magazines. Okay. So, so there, if, if, if an, if a parent emails you and says, I have this prodigious child, that's not enough for you to, you know, believe them. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't believe them. It's just that for me to make a long trip, I want to make sure that the child is actually a prodigy and not just a gifted child. And that is and the definition there that you use is is related still to the time at which they reach uh, proficiency of an adult. Well, you could think of gifted psychometrically and think about IQ, or you could think of gifted in um, art or music. But before I go, I want to make sure that, that it, there's a real talent there that is related to prejudiceness. So I guess that's where I'm still unclear as to how do you make that decision? That well, like, what, if you what make the distinguishes cover of people, the prodigy? If you make the cover of People magazine when you're six, that, that counts. <laughs> Um, if you've been held up as one of the best 10 artists in the world and you're only 14, that counts. They, okay. They've already made their mark somewhere by the time I see them. So what do you see as the best outcome of your research now? Um, and in terms of, uh, is it is it, do you see the application really being in terms of helping individuals who are on the spectrum? Um, or do you see it going in some other direction? So, for example, helping all of us reach our potential more. Um, where do you see as the the sort of best outcome of your work? Well, both things are true, and that's a great question. Um, the work I'm doing a case right now with uh, Lee Thompson is to see if people have very different skill sets in very different majors. And if you could test that right away, people would know what their strengths and weaknesses are and know which fields they would be most likely to be happy in. And the second thing is, if we do find the genetic moderator, hopefully, you know, understanding what's going on with the deficits will lead to better treatment for children on the autistic spectrum. And finally, Kimberly, as you're telling these stories, what do you hope that people get out of them? Because sometimes when we hear about 
prodigies, it can make us feel a little depressed. <laughs> um, so what do, what do you hope that, uh, that people can learn from these stories beyond the kind of, um, you know, amazing kind of uh, look into these very rare cases? Yeah, so these kids are incredible. And, you know, it, maybe it's depressing, maybe it's inspiring. But what I really hope people take away is that they are much more than a curiosity. You know, these kids are incredibly talented, but they're also, you know, passionate and they're highly empathetic and they're very kind hearted. And I think that they're very interesting from a research perspective. You know, I don't think that we can really understand extreme talent and expertise until we understand child prodigies. And I think this question of why is it that the prodigies have the strengths associated with autism but not the challenges could be very informative for autism research and is something that, you know, is worth exploring and sort of taking this novel angle on, on autism. Well, Joanne and Kimberly, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. I found that really interesting and it's it's a claim that I was very skeptical about when I first heard it, the idea that autism is connected closely in some way with prodigies. Uh, I'm still skeptical, but I find their data to be interesting and worthy of a second look. One thing that would interest me is if, you know, and this goes back to us talking about the definition of a prodigy and how do you even decide who is or is not a prodigy. But if we could see if the rate of prodigies happens to be increasing at the same level as the rate of cases of autism, because we've seen a huge explosion in recent years of that, maybe due to better diagnoses, but maybe due to, uh, you know, more actual incidences of autism. But I think that that would be another way to uh, connect these two, to correlate them, is if you can show that the number of prodigies are increasing along with the number of autism cases. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, she's now, uh, Joanne has now compiled, I think, a set of 30 of these cases, which is bigger, uh, is a bigger sample size than anyone has so far in history. And yet it's such a tiny sample. And so, you know, I don't know if she's been able to capture more individuals because it's on the rise or because, you know, there's a, a media interest in it. And, you know, the way that our media system works now, we can, you know, hear more about different parts of the world. And, and so you can discover these individuals. Um, I, you know, I, I still am very concerned about the confirmation bias in this kind of work, because, of course, if you look for something um, in a small sample size and you have a hypothesis, then you're likely to find what you're looking for. And without appropriate controls, it's really kind of hard to, you know, not be not succumb to the confirmation bias. And yet, you know, when you when you hear about some of the ways in which these prodigies interact with the world, it is so difficult to believe, uh, especially if you're a parent of a typically developing child, that it almost seems as though, you know, there has to be something that's different fundamentally from the moment they're born or even earlier than that. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I can certainly agree with that. I feel like that makes perfect sense that there might be a way that certain kids are born that leaves them prone to to being prodigies, um, especially if combined with parents who are interested in uh, allowing that sort of talent to develop. You know, I, I know that a, a lot of the prodigies they talk about or some of the I, sh I can't say a lot because there aren't even that many cases, but some of the prodigies they talk about uh, didn't have a lot of practice doing what they were doing, but they were already good at it. That said, I do feel like there might be uh, more, quote unquote, prodigies among families where children are pushed specifically to do certain things and to do them often and you know, and to practice them and to grow those skills. 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is this kind of fine line between pushing your kid and and turning what they seem to have a natural inclination towards into something that they identify with and then, you know, over time refuse to take risks for fear of failure, you know, in this kind of fixed mindset way. Um, So it makes me wonder to the extent, you know, at which there are other kids that have these predispositions, whether they're genetic or, you know, something else, but instead you know, there's there's something that happens in their environment that kills the love of what it is that they're doing and makes it work in some way. I mean, I don't know. I think I think uh, Joanne and Kimberly would argue that there's a fundamental difference in the way that they approach this work, uh, that the passion comes from within. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just have a hard time believing that their environment doesn't have a significant effect, you know, from the moment they're born, because there are so many different ways in which the environment can affect us. And, you know, I'll throw in one other thing that still makes me skeptical, which is, you know, you're talking about research that at times has had five data points, you know, five families. That's the that's what they're pinning most of this on. And at the end of the day, that should be really good and really interesting preliminary research that then informs the next 10 to 20 years of other researchers looking into this and verifying those results and exploring them further. And I become very skeptical where in, in when instead of that happening, the researchers in question write a book. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, I think Joanne would argue that she has been studying this for several decades now. Um, but I agree with you. There was the, the the book is hard to put down, admittedly. I mean, these stories are really compelling. It's beautifully written, um, but it doesn't feel so much like a science book as it does, a, you know, a, a good set of narrative case histories. Um, and unlike some of the other sort of case her- uh, case history books that say, you know, people like Oliver Sacks or um, others have written, you know, there doesn't seem to be as much of a kind of underlying, you know, sci- scientific thread behind it. And I think that's because you're really, there's not a lot to compare these individuals to other than um, this larger group of people uh, on the spectrum. And so just yeah, to be I agree clear, with you I, on there. You know, I, I don't, I don't blame Stevens and Rousset's for wanting to write a book about this stuff, because obviously, they find it fascinating. And they think they have their hands on something really good and, and scientifically rigorous. It's more that I worry about uh, the what what I see is a maybe a lack of follow up from other researchers, and this instead sort of bypassing that uh, replication process in science, and instead going straight into the popular consciousness, uh, where it will be accepted as fact, no matter how Stevens and Rousats present their their hypotheses as you know, no matter how tenuous they present their hypotheses as being. Yeah, and that's sort of where I kind of, you know, brought up the whole thing about left brain, right brain, because I think that has been, you know, woefully misrepresented by the media, this notion that some people are left brained and some people are right brained. And I mean, it's 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 a really unfortunate myth that continues to get, um, you know, uh, continues to percolate in the collective consciousness. And yet, of course, it depends on your definition of creativity, right? A lot of in fact, most eminent creatives are very much use the left side of their brain. And as I mentioned, you know, the left and right hemispheres are, are, are very tightly interconnected. So it's not like one acts independently of the other. So anyway, there's, there's, there's that kind of worries me a little bit. But I also think that by bringing these uh, prodigies to light, that sort of gives us at least a starting point in terms of understanding them and maybe kind of getting a real insight into what happens at the extreme end of uh, uh, human intelligence. And also maybe having that sort of popularization of their research, they will encourage more researchers to get interested in this uh, topic and, and maybe replicate their results. So yeah, could be good. So that's it for another episode. Rebecca, I want to thank you for joining me on this installment of Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Indre. I always have so much fun. And where can our audience find you if they need more Rebecca Watson? Oh, well... God forbid. But they can find me at skeptic.org, S-K-E-P-C-H-I-C-K.org, 
or on Twitter at Rebecca Watson, or I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Rebecca. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and our anonymous donor. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 180,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free 30-day trial. To get started, go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. That's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus chef-designed recipes which let you cook restaurant-grade meals at home in under 30 minutes. With Home Chef, you can skip the grocery store, eliminate meal planning, and save time. Your meal kits are kept cold in an insulated box, so you don't even have to stay home to accept your delivery. Deliveries are made weekly and right to your doorstep for under $10 a meal. Visit homechef.com minds and use code minds at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com minds and use code M-I-N-D-S. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own stories of a prodigy or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.